lead us from the unreal to the real, lead us from darkness unto light, lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. In our series of lectures on Swami Vivekananda's Jnana Yoga, this is the third in that series. Swami Vivekananda delivered a series of talks in London in 1896, which became the bulk of the book Jnana Yoga. Today, the text we're going to reflect upon is a talk called The Absolute and Manifestation. There's a phrase in English, um, going off on the deep end. Yeah. So I think it refers to in a swimming pool, if you go to the deepest part and jump into the deepest, instead of going from the shallow to the deeper. Swami Vivekananda starts this talk with the most difficult and most profound of all questions in Advaita Vedanta. How did the one become the many? And he says, the most difficult question in the philosophy of Advaita is, how did the one become the many? What is this question? Advaita Vedanta says that there is one reality. Though it appears to be a world of, of difference and multiplicity and, and plurality, behind all this plurality, underneath this differentiation, there is oneness. One existence consciousness bliss. So Brahman alone appearing as the many. That is the uh, central teaching of Advaita Vedanta. But then that begs the question that how did this one become the many? Maybe there is Brahman, maybe there is existence consciousness bliss, we do not know. But what we do know is this world. Here, look. A hundred people, more than a hundred people here, outside seven billion people, and all the animals and plants and all the quasars and quarks and trillions of entities in this universe. So how did this one Brahman become the many? How did the infinite become the finite? How did Brahman, the ultimate reality, become Jiva Jagat Ishwara, to put it in Vedantic terms, Jiva means us, Jagat means this universe, and Ishwara means God. So the triangle of God, sentient beings, and the world, which religions, different theistic religions talk about. How did that one absolute become the universe? So he starts with this grand question, the most difficult of questions. And the answer, of course, we know, Maya. So he says... Um, Swami Vivekananda actually drew up diagram there. It's one of the rare times. I imagine or picture him uh, in that little house uh, in London. They're going up to a, maybe a blackboard with a chalk. Or I don't know if he had a chart or paper. I don't know what, how he did it. But in the book you see a diagram. He, and he says, look at this drawing. He actually says that. So that means there must have been actually a drawing in the, in the talk. And the drawing is, it just says, a, B, C. So A on the top, it's written the absolute. And B at the bottom is written the universe. So the universe here, the absolute. In between is C. And he says, in C it says, time, space, causation. Time, space, causation. 
So the absolute passing through time-space causation appears as the universe. And by the way, he, he goes on, says, by universe, we mean all of it. Not just the physical universe, which science talks about, but also the mental universe, the universe of our thoughts and feelings and ideas. Even the religious universe. Religions talk about heavens and hells and other worlds. If all those are there, whatever they are, all of it together, the physical and the... I mean, mathematicians would talk about a ma mathematical realm of a platonic realm of numbers, um, mathematical truths, all of that, whatever, whatever exists, you put it all together, call it the universe. It is the absolute existence consciousness place through the prism, he calls it the glass, through the uh, prism or the glass of time, space and causation appears as our universe, this universe. Time, space, and causation are together known as maya, desha, kala, nimitta. Causation is karya, karana, cause and effect. Whatever is there and not here, in Hindi, yaha, waha, here and there, that is maya, it's in space. Whatever is then and not now, separated by time, a past, a present, and a future, that is maya. Whatever is cause and effect, different, um, this, has, this is the cause of that, that is within Maya. So immediately you see science will also be within Maya because cause and effect, causality is within Maya. Um, Swami Vivekananda elsewhere has said, the universe is the wreckage of the infinite on the shores of time, space and causation. If you put this question in a different way, the question was, how has the infinite become the finite? If you put it in a different way, why? The infinite could have remained the infinite, saved us all this trouble on a Sunday morning of <laughs> coming all the way to a Vedanta class to listen to abstract, dry talks about infinite and finite. It could have remained the infinite, could have remained an ocean of existence, consciousness, bliss, no problem at all. Why has it become this, you know, this universe? Um, I've earlier had occasion to refer to Somerset Mom, who on his visit to India, he, made, he met Ramana Maharshi. Um, he, when he learns about Brahman appearing as the universe, the one reality appearing as the many, he, he writes with dry humor, he writes, I felt Brahman could have let well enough alone. <laughs> could have remained as Brahman, you know, and saved us all this trouble. The question is, why has the one become the many? And the answer in Vedanta is, it hasn't. It hasn't. <laughs> See, the answer in religion is that God created the universe. God is a creator. So creator will create, has created. It's the display of the absolute sovereign might of God. Or another explanation is in some of the religions, dualistic bhakti traditions in India is Leela. It is the sport, the divine play of God, whatever it is. Some explanation why God has created this universe. But, and science says how from the Big Bang, before the Big Bang they're talking about a quantum vacuum or something like that, I don't understand. But something has become something else. And Vedanta comes here, note the difference. Vedanta, Dvaita Vedanta comes here and says, it has not. It hasn't become something else. The absolute is exactly the absolute. Brahman is exactly Brahman, existence, consciousness, bliss, right now. Nothing really has happened there. 
then why is this appearing in this way? Exactly, look at the term appearance. Without changing at all, Brahman is appearing as this multiplicity, as Jagat, universe, as Jiva, you and I, and as God. So Jiva, Jagat, Ishwar is a triangle which is an appearance. The rope has not become a snake. If you're asking why and how did the rope become a snake, the answer, the correct answer is it has not. The rope has not become a snake. It only looks like a snake. It only appears to be a snake. To whom? To a person who does not know the rope. But the sky is not blue. Today it's gray, but <laughs> the sky is not blue. It only appears to be blue for, uh, because of an optical illusion, because of the laws of optics. And once you know that, it will still look blue to you. But you know it is not blue. It, it's uh, the, because of the scattering of light in a particular way. So it's an appearance. That's another characteristic of Maya. It's not that Brahman has become the universe. It's not that the one has become the many. It's not the infinite has become finite. The infinite appears to be finite, is experienced as the finite. The one is experienced as the many. That is Maya. Nothing has happened, it looks like that. But one can persist, like a little schoolboy. Why? <laughs> you can ask, you can ask, why? And the answer here in Vedanta and Swami Vivekananda also says this is a contradiction. The question itself is wrong. And he leaves it at, at that. Actually in this talk he does not leave it at that. He goes deeper into it. But at other places he leaves it at that. Vedanta seems to say this question is wrong. But it seemed to me a, a cop out, you know. Uh, why, why can't you ask this question? You can, you can still ask. Okay, the question is wrong. But why is the question wrong? I feel I can ask. Why is Brahman, all right, Brahman has not become this universe, Brahman is appearing as this universe, but why? You say, Maya, but why Maya? You say, question is wrong. Why is the question wrong? <laughs> you can ask, we really feel we can ask. And it took me some time to understand, several years in fact. Let us reflect on what are we asking when we ask why Maya? Now put, them, put these two questions together. Why Maya? And what did we see Maya is? Time, space and causation. So why Maya means why time, space and causation? Why time, space? Exactly. What are we expecting when we ask why? Think about it. What kind of answer are we expecting? What will satisfy us? When we ask why, any why, anytime we ask why, what kind of answer will satisfy us? An explanation. Is it not so? Why is the grass wet? What kind of answer will satisfy you? Don't say Maya. <laughs> grass is wet because it rained. Why did it rain? Because there were clouds. Why were there clouds? Because of evaporation of water. Because. I need, for my why, I need a because. When I ask a question about why I'm asking for a cause. Now. What are we asking here when we ask why Maya? We are asking for a cause, an explanation of Maya. But then, imagine, what are you asking? You are asking for a cause of causation. Because Maya is time, space and causation. We are asking for a cause of causation. Causation is a fancy way of saying why. When you say why causation, you are literally asking why, why. 
And let's go a little deeper. Why is this question uh, meaningless? This question is meaningless because it's like this. Maya is time, space, and causation. Suppose somebody asks, time, okay. What was there before time? But before and after are time words. Only when you're talking about time, you can ask a question before and after. And time, past, present, and future. When? This is a time word. Suppose we ask the question, oh, Maya is space, time, space, and causation. What is outside space? But outside and inside are space words. Only when there is space, you can talk about outside the hall and inside the hall. Outside the Vedanta society and inside, only when space is existing. But, before, but without space, how can you say outside and inside? It's a logically a wrong question to ask, what is outside space? It's logically a wrong question to ask, what is before time? You get me? And exactly like that, it's logically uh, wrong to ask, what is the cause of causation? Because only after you have causation, you can ask, what is the cause of this? In the universe, in this universe, everything has a cause. Everything is causally linked. So what is the cause of this thing? You expect an answer, and you are right to do so. But for causation itself, you cannot ask that question. So this is the answer that I found. Why is this question wrong? It's, a Ill it's an illogical question to ask. It may not be very satisfying, but this is logically, this is the answer to the question. Why Maya cannot be asked? But in a more satisfying way, I found the answer from a monk in the uh, Himalayas, in, in Vrindavan actually. He puts it this way. Imagine a little, a little boy looking up at the sky. The nature of the eye is to see, is to see. But the nature of empty space is to remain unseen. We think we can see space. Actually, we don't see space. We see objects in space. And then we, our mind, uh, our brain actually uh, generates this, uh, the concept of space or the approximation of space. What we see are people. Imagine if nothing were there, no entity at all, no physical object at all. We would have no estimation of space also. It's only when two things are there, we begin to get an understanding of space. Anyway, so um, the little child is looking up into the sky. The nature of the eye is to see. The nature of the sky is to remain unseen. You will see. The sky will remain unseen. When the seeing meets the unseeable, what will happen? Appearance, Appearance. yes, you're right. And error will happen. If you're, the nature of the eye is to see, the nature of the sky is to remain unseen. And what will the child see? An inverted blue bowl. Like a surface, there's a sky covering. And children seem to think that there is a, like a, some bowl is covering the earth, you know, like a blue uh, surface. It look, if you look up there, it looks like there is something there. Yeah. So, it's a mistake. Exactly like that. Imagine. Satchidananda, pure consciousness, Brahman is consciousness. The very nature of consciousness is to experience, is to experience, is to illumine, is to reveal. But there is nothing else to reveal. Just imagine the absolute existence, consciousness, bliss. 
Its very nature is to shine forth and reveal. But there is nothing else to reveal. There is only the Absolute. It will reveal. There is no other to reveal. Because Brahman is the only thing that exists. Then what will happen? An error will happen. An error or... Error is a very mild way of putting it. What happens is... When, the, when that Absolute experiences itself, which cannot be experienced as an object, it will experience itself. The pure being, infinite, unbroken expanse of being, experiences itself as existing things. Broken, many things. The one experiences itself as the many. The pure consciousness experiences itself as many conscious experiences, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, remembering, desiring, hating. Behind it all is one unbroken consciousness. The one ananda, unbroken bliss, undivided bliss, experiences itself as a mixture of joy and sorrow, sukha dukkha. Basically, Brahman experiences itself as samsara. The unchanging experiences itself as the changing. The infinite experiences itself as the finite. This is as good as an explanation as I've found. If you are not an object, then you, the pure consciousness, the only way you can experience yourself is projecting yourself as an object, but which is not really you. So that is how Brahman experiences itself as this universe. Somebody said, but it need not experience, suppose... It does not experience, just remains as Brahman. That too is possible. Look at our, our daily experience. How do we see ourselves? How do we experience the world as waking, dreaming, and deep sleep? Notice, waking and dreaming is subject object experience. In waking, also subject object right now. In dreaming, also subject object. But in deep sleep, blank. So Brahman also experiences itself as this created universe. And also at the end of the universe, as the unmanifested, um, the ap- like, like the before creation, what in, in Vedanta we call it pralaya, uh, at the end of creation, pralaya, as no, no manifested object at all. So both are there. From the unmanifest, the manifested universe comes and goes back to the unmanifest. So this is another way of thinking about the question, why Maya? And the other one, which I found a very beautiful little answer by one of our early swamis, he said, actually, on this side of enlightenment, there is only the question and no answer. On that side of enlightenment, they have the answer, but no question. (laughs) It's only we who ask this question, why? Very interesting. Those who are supposed to have the the answer, they don't seem to ask the question at all. They seem to be perfectly satisfied. They've got something which they cannot express to us, but that which seems to have solved their problem. But this brings us to the next interesting thing. Brahman itself cannot be objectified. Think about it. If you objectify Brahman, if you bring, if you know Brahman, knowing Brahman means, knowing means objectification. After all, what is knowledge? Knowledge is objectification by our minds. I see something. So it's an object to mind through the eyes. I hear something. It's an object to mind through the ears. I conceive of something. It's an object to the intellect. So objectification is essential to knowledge. And yet Brahman cannot be objectified. It is samsara which is an object. 
Brahman cannot be objectified. It is a pure subject. It is you yourself, the very essence of ourselves. Brahman cannot be known in the sense we think of knowledge. And then Vivekananda says, I think he must have seen the expressions in the faces of people there in, you know, in London in 1896. He says, but you must not go away with the feeling that it is uh, unknown and unknowable. It is more than known. In the Keno Upanishad, um, when it talks about the Atman, the consciousness within, the ultimate reality, Brahman, immediately the question will come to the student, how can I know this? How can I realize this? And the teacher delivers a, 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 a shocker. He says, the third mantra of the Upanishad, he says, it cannot be objectified because it's that, that ultimate reality, the absolute, is not an object to the eyes. You can't see it or hear it or smell it or taste it or touch it. All right, but I can at least describe it with words, right? Even speech does not express it. If you describe it with words, know that what you have described is limited and not correct. Off the mark. Well, at least I can understand it with the mind. Na manaha. It's beyond the mind. It's, it's, it's not an object to the mind either. Um, but you can teach us, right? That's why we are here. We took all the trouble. Na vidmo na bijani mo We have no idea how to teach it to you. You say, I want my fees back. <laughs> you should have told me this earlier. But wait a minute. You might not be able to teach us, but you are enlightened, right? You know it. You know it at least. We want at least, even if I cannot know it, even if I cannot be taught, at least there's somebody who knows, somebody who's enlightened. You know it, right? Navid Maha, we do not know. <laughs> you can imagine the horrified look in the student's face. And maybe getting ready to pack up and leave in disgust. And then the teacher says, wait a minute. There is a way. There is a way in which our ancient masters have taught us. And we have become enlightened in that way. Let me try that upon you. Experiment. A spiritual guinea pig. And let's see if it works. Let's see if it works. Do you become enlightened? Do you realize that absolute, that I am that? You do, do you realize that? What is that way? Uh -huh. Anya devatad vidita datho avidita dadhi iti shushruma purvesham ye nastadvya chachakshiri. I'm quoting from the Kena Upanishad, one of the most ancient Upanishads. What does it say? That which we are searching for, the absolute. It is other than everything that you know. Whatever we know, anybody knows, whatever we know, it's other than that. And so then, oh, it's unknown. Okay, I know there are many things that I know and there are many things that I do not know. Go to the university and look at the syllabus. Okay, I know one subject and there are so many other subjects I do not know. This is the known and that's the unknown. One great scientist said, the more we expand out the horizons of our knowledge, the more we feel the vast sea of the unknown surrounding us. So what is there? Known and unknown. The entire universe is divided into known and unknown. Different for each of us. So Brahman, the ultimate reality is not within what we know. So it's unknown. Avidita dadhi, it is beyond the unknown. What I'm talking about is neither known nor unknown. 
what is the one thing which is neither known nor unknown? There's only one thing. And you know that. The knower, yes. You the knower. You are neither the known nor the unknown. You are not the unknown because the knower, the knowing consciousness, the subject never becomes the object. And remember, knowledge is objectification. You never become an object of knowledge. And yet, who is more known to you than you yourself? You are you, after all. You cannot objectify it in language. You cannot make it an object of instruments. But you are whatever you are. That being, that spiritual being, that consciousness you are. It's not an object. And you, yet you know yourself. What is more known to us than I, I, me, myself? So this is the teaching. The core of the teaching. And it seems very simplistic. But actually when you apply it, it's a knife by which you can see. Now when I look upon myself, there, whatever I thought I was, this was, this is me. I begin to see if I know it, then it's not really me. What is the rule? It is other than the known, it's other than the unknown. Not the known, whatever it is. The body, do I know it? Yeah. Then it cannot be this, neti, not this. The life forces. Life itself, is it known? Yes, I can feel it. Scientists study it. Neti, because it's known. The mind, thoughts, memories, are they known? Yes. When I remember something, I, rem I know that I remember it. When I cannot remember something, I feel that I cannot remember it. So the memory or the lack of it is, is known. Then neti, because the known cannot be the self. Then this very intellect which I'm using right now. Please follow me carefully. What I'm using right now, the intellect, trying to understand, trying to follow this carefully. That intellect, is it known or unknown? It's known, because I can experience it right now. We, each of us, we are experiencing it. Hopefully. <laughs> we are experiencing it. Therefore, if it is known, it's an object of my awareness. Neti, not this. Then unknown, no, not even unknown. Not that. Neti, neti. This way we are driven back into the witness consciousness. which you, I'm calling it a witness consciousness. The Upanishad does not do so. The Upanishad uses very um, elliptical language. That which is, which is the eye of the eye, the ear of the ear. Shrotrasya, shrotra, manaso, mano, yet the mind of the mind. Uh, instead of saying it is the witness consciousness, the moment we, it says it's the witness consciousness, what do we do? Our uh, incorrigible tendency to objectify. Okay, there is a witness con con consciousness. Let me find it now. It is the very one which is doing the searching. <laughs> so you cannot do that. You cannot objectify it. But you can do something much better. What is that? You can be it. Or more accurately, we can recognize that we are it. And once you recognize that, once we recognize that, Atimuchya Dhira, the Upanishad says, one transcends all human limitations and sorrows. Because that con witness consciousness, our real nature, is one with the Absolute. Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. It actually becomes a living experience. Our first reaction is, wow. And the second reaction is, why did I not know this earlier? It was there all the time and for everybody. So all the methods in the Upanishads, they are all meant for this. 
We have studied Drik Drishya Viveka. The seer and the seen are separate. So whatever you can experience, the forms are separate from the eyes. The eyes see the forms and eyes and the forms are separate. Do you, if you have studied Drik Drishya Viveka. The eyes themselves become the object to the mind. So the mind and the eyes are separate. The mind itself becomes an object to awareness. So the awareness and the mind are separate. And I am that awareness can never be objectified. Drigeva natu drishyate. The, the witness consciousness can never be objectified. So it's this very thing we're trying to find out. And that is the ultimate reality. The Upanishad says, Yan manasana manute yena hurmanomatam tadeva brahmatvam vidhi nedam yadidam upasate by which the which the mind cannot reach which the mind cannot reach that means the mind cannot objectify it the mind objectifies everything else everything that you know in your life is objectified by means the objectified means the mind can think about it but then what is the relationship between the mind and that witness consciousness the witness consciousness illumines the mind that by which the mind functions the mind cannot reach it but the mind functions because of that. You are the awareness which lights up the mind from within. And therefore the thoughts, feelings, emotions, desires, all of that, they start functioning. And they objectify the world. So that by which the mind functions and which the mind cannot objectify, know that to be Brahman. You say, but that's me. Yes, you are Brahman. Nedam yadidam upasati. What a stunning thing. Not Brahman, the ultimate reality is not what you worship as this. Imagine what a stunning thing this is in the Hindu context. Where thousands of uh, wonderful names and forms of gods and goddesses and mythologies. Uh, profusion of divinities. And he says, this, what you worship as this is not that. Of course the Hindu understands it because in all Hindu worship... If you actually look at the mantras, when the priest chants it, and that which is formless, I have worshipped it with a form, forgive me. That which is uh, infinite, I worshipped it in the finite. That which is not an object, I worshipped it as an object, please forgive me. Because it's a methodology of, of uh, in any worship, Durga Puja for example, there's something called Pran Pratishta, where you establish uh, the living divinity in the image or the object, by bringing it out is it from your own heart. The mantra says that from your own heart. Heart means from your own consciousness. So it's a methodology of worship. Because the pure consciousness or the pure subject, you cannot do anything with it. Because it's not an it. But the Upanishad is very clear. Nedam yad idam upasate. What you express as different from yourself, as this, is not that ultimate reality. As an aside... So the great Abrahamic traditions, starting with Judaism, which said um, that you will not worship a graven image. And it became a very big thing, especially um, uh, in Jewish religion and later in Islam. Uh, this is the core idea. But the, it is not understood in that way. It was understood in a very crude way. It was understood in a crude way that, all right, these people have an image. Oh, they're worshipping a graven image. Destroy the image. And this is false. This is their, their pe the people are unbelievers. Murder them. Destroy their temples and images. No, no, that was not the original idea. The original idea of the prophets was correct. That the ultimate reality is not an object. But when they come... See, the Hindus were a very ancient, very sophisticated civilization. So they understood this very well. 
Swami Vivekananda said in another place, not in this lecture, talking to Christian audiences here, I am sorry, but I must say that your, um, that your want, much wanted monotheism is but halfway house. That all, there are not many gods, but there's one reality, and that is the god of religion. But Vedanta just begins there. Advaita Vedanta begins there and goes further. That one reality is not something separate from you. We are all part of it, Vishishtadvaita. And then we are it, that and I am that. That is Advaita. So it goes much further from polytheism to monotheism to the absolute of Dirguna Brahman. He said, your much vaunted monotheism is but halfway house. So this is the core idea uh, that Brahman in itself unknowable, but it is our own inner reality. Still a question remains. You just mentioned Maya. So ultimately there are two, right? Brahman and Maya. Brahman through Maya appears, I, all right, I'll correct myself, appears as the universe, but still there must be Maya then. So ultimately there are two things, it appears to be so, there are two things, Brahman and Maya, the absolute reality and time, space and causation. But no, Swami Vivekananda dwells upon this, Advaita Vedanta makes it clear, time, space and causation are not independent realities. When you say two, two things means they should be able to exist and be experienced separately. So this clock, I am cognizant of the time, don't worry. <laughs> so this clock and this piece of paper, these are two realities because here you can see the paper apart from the clock. You can see the clock apart from the paper. In this way, are Brahman and Maya two realities? No. Why not? Well, you can understand it in different ways. One simple way of understanding is, what is Brahman? Existence. Being. Isness. So if something is other than Brahman, other than existence, what, what does it become? Non-existence. If something is A, other than A, not A. If something is existence, other than existence, non-existence. If Maya is something apart from Brahman, a separate reality, you're literally saying it's, it's something apart from reality, becomes non-real. So Maya does not exist apart from Brahman. Swami Vivekananda dwells on this. He says, time, space and causation are not independent realities. Uh, he puts it more directly. They do not even have the reality which this chair has. He says. So they exist only in relation to each other. Notice our own experience of time. When you're awake right now, time is moving. Or sometimes in Vedanta lectures, time does not seem to move. You know? <laughs> How long is this going to go on? <laughs> but even in dreams, time moves. But when we are in deep sleep, Time does not, there's no experience of time. As long as when the mind is not functioning, when there's no gap between one thought and the next, you have no experience of time. It's only after you wake up and you say, oh, so much time has passed, I slept. Similarly with causation, similarly with space. When we dream, I'm out there walking in Central Park and suddenly I wake up and sit, I'm, seeing, sit, I'm sitting in the, on the bed. So that entire central park, which I've experienced, I'm walking through that and there's space and trees and, and lakes. All of that space was where? Was in the dreamer's mind. 
It's not that I was in space, that, ex that experienced space, rather the space was in me. This is an example of a dream. Exactly like that in Advaita Vedanta they say, time, space and causation appear, function and disappear in Brahman. So Maya has no existence apart from Brahman. Um, the story of Narada, you know how the sage Narada wanted to know what Maya was and Krishna says, fetch me some water, I'll tell you. And then Narada goes and then he in the village to get a pail of water, he meets this girl and falls in love with her, marries, uh, settles down, has a samsara with um, wife and children. And 12 years have passed and there's a great flood. And in that flood, his wife and children are swept away and he's heartbroken, weeping piteously. And then he sees Krishna standing in front of him and saying, Oh Narada, where were you? I've been waiting for nearly half an hour. Twelve years passed in a flash, a half an hour. Now tell me that which is more powerful, those twelve years of experience or that one moment of seeing Krishna? That one moment of seeing Krishna. In our own experience, when we travel, you're flying from here to Mumbai, and you come back, so days have passed, and you have traveled thousands and thousands of miles across oceans and continents. One moment you sit up on your bed. Oh, I'm here. Which is more powerful? All that long journey across oceans and continents, all those hours and days you have traveled and spent all the time and all that space, is that more powerful or this one instant of sitting on this little bed, which is more powerful? This is more powerful. You realize all of that was an appearance. This, so knowledge, when we realize the Brahman, this entire display of Maya vanishes before us. So time, space and causation and yet Swamiji says, Swami Vivekananda says, we cannot say that they do not exist. Why? Because we are seeing all this. So time, space and causation, Maya, we cannot say that it is an independent existence apart from Brahman. We cannot say that it does not exist at all. In Sanskrit, it is, it is phrased this way. Sad asad bhyam anirvachanyam. Neither pure being nor non-being. This is the very definition of Maya. The dualists would attack and say that, how can it be neither this nor that? It has to be one of the two. True or false? How, what is this in-between? <laughs> true, true or false? But nowadays I hear there are multi-valued logics. And, um, um, math mathematics has developed over the last two, three hundred years. Um, logic with not just two values, yes and no, true and false, on and off. <laughs> but multi-valued. There can be other values too. So it, that is what Advaita was talking about. Neither being itself nor non-being itself. In between. Our dreams, the people you met in your dreams, the places you visited, those people, the food that you ate, it doesn't exist. True, because it's, it doesn't happen here. But you can't say it was nothing because you experienced it. So that in-between state, that is the nature of time, space and causation. This approach of the impersonal Brahman is something that is, that is very relevant today. Swami Vivekananda, more than a hundred years ago, he said, this is the one approach which is acceptable to a modern scientific mind. 
He was in the World Parliament of Religions. Then he went to Europe and he came back here again. In the World Parliament of Religions, when he would give his talks, Nikola Tesla. So nowadays he's become more popular. Car. I mean the inventor, not the car. <laughs> Elon Musk and his Tesla car. But because of that, the name has become more popular now. People have sort of forgotten about him. Brilliant man. At least as brilliant as Edison. Only Edison had more, more commercial sense, and Tesla didn't. But uh, Tesla was probably more brilliant, uh, but a little eccentric. Tesla used to stand and listen. He, would close, he had his own pavilion. Edison, too, had his own pavilion in, in the World Parliament, of, uh, in the Universal Exposition in Chicago. He would close his own pavilion and come and listen to He would stand at the back, listen to Vivekananda's talks, and then leave right after that. And then they met. In Swami Vivekananda's letters, you say, we, I met this great scientist of the West, and we have very in, they had intense discussions about Sankhyan cosmology and the latest discoveries of physics at that time. Unfortunately, physics was not all that advanced, so they couldn't really come to an... I don't think anything much came out of it, but they are very interested in each other. And um, there are letters from Vivekananda to Tesla, Tesla to Vivekananda, discussing um, the Sankhyan concepts of, of uh, uh, consciousness, of prakriti, of nature. One of our swamis, he, there's a Tesla museum. Tesla was from which country? Eastern European country? Serbia. So they have a museum in his hometown about Tesla. So our Swami, we, we, we got a letter from Vivekananda to Tesla. Or from, yeah, from Vivekananda to Tesla. So he wrote to that museum that, would you like to have a copy? Because you have a museum of Tesla. And they wrote back saying, we have the entire set here. <laughs> the correspondence between Vivekananda and Tesla. In fact, I was reading, a new biography has come out. It's called Wizard, the Life and Times of Nikola Tesla. So I was interested in seeing, does it mention Vedanta and Vivekananda at all? Because Tesla used to come here to the Vedanta Society of New York even after Vivekananda uh, left. He would come and attend the lectures of Swami Abhedananda. In the lists of people who used to come, well-known people at that time, Nikola Tesla's name is there. Abhedananda also met uh, Edison. He writes in his uh, reminiscences, today I met this um, well-known American inventor who took me to his laboratory and showed me his experiments and asked about India and presented him with a gramophone. <laughs> anyway, so Tesla, in that book, it's mentioned in Wizard, The Life and Times of Nikola Tesla. It's an absolutely new um, biography. And uh, obviously, the author does not know much about Vedanta. He spells it Vendanta or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but he says Tesla was greatly influenced by the um, Hindu mystic and yogi Vivekananda. And had some things which I did not know. For example, it says Tesla became a lifelong celebrator, brahmachari, after his conversations with Vivekananda. Many years afterwards, when he would write um, his scientific papers for scientific journals, editors would be exasperated because of his frequent use of akasha and prana. <laughs> and this is the plight of the editor. How can you contradict Tesla, Nikola Tesla, and yet he says this cannot be published in scientific journals. But he would insist, no, this is, this is um, the most advanced cosmology. Um, Vivekananda says, in the modern age, this dualistic religions no longer hold ground. Yeah. It is this idea of an impersonal, non-dual reality, an impersonal God, which, is, which holds appeal to 
modern scientific minds. In this age, he goes so far as to say, in this age, the only religion that can have any hold, that can have any acceptance is Advaita. He says. By Advaita, it does not mean just Advaita Vedanta of in, the, in Hinduism, but this non-dual impersonal idea of, of a reality. Um, I was just reading a letter written by Albert Einstein to one Gutkind. It was sold last year in 2018, auctioned for $2.9 million, one letter. He wrote it here in Princeton. Uh, one of his colleagues had given him a book about the Jewish religion. He was Jewish, and he was not at all fond of conventional religion. So they thought maybe at least he will support <laughs> the Jewish religion. He read the book, and the book, book was written by one Eric Goodkind, um, or Goodkind. And after reading that, he wrote this letter. He said that I consider the Jewish religion, along with all other religions, to be superstitions, childish and naive. <laughs> to me, the word of God is just human weakness. He says. So that was his idea of the dualistic religions, the theistic religions. He says all religions, not just Jewish religion, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, whatever. So what was Einstein's position on spirituality and God? Did he was complete atheist? Not at all. He clearly says in more than once, I believe in Spinoza's God. In this one impersonal being which reveals itself as this universe, a pantheistic God. He says it's what might be called in common parlance pantheism. A divinity which reveals itself in the workings, in the impersonal workings of the universe. Not a God who's concerned with the personalities of human beings. That I consider to be anthropomorphic. If you look at Spinoza's work, from a Vedantic perspective, it's very close to what we call Vishishtadvaita. One reality encompassing the sentient and insentient universe. Chit, achit, vishishta, brahma. Brahman is the absolute, which is comprised of parts. What parts? Us, living sentient beings. And the entire physical universe, including our bodies also. So chit, achit. Chit means conscious, achit means non-conscious, not insentient. And the entirety. He writes, he actually wrote a poem to, here itself, he wrote a poem to... Spinoza, calling him this holy man. He believed. He was spiritual. This is so much like what Vivekananda said, that for modern mind, this impersonal idea of God is acceptable, but not the personal uh, dualistic ideas of religion for, for, for the scientific mind. And I've seen this again and again. Um, in this country and in uh, India, when I talk to people, trained scientists, mathematicians, they are uneasy with this, uh, with the old dualistic form of religion. But they are at least, if they, don't, if they are not uh, convinced, they are at least intrigued by this Advaitic idea, the, uh, the Advaitic conception of God. Um, I remember once I was sitting next to this lady who was a neuroscientist. We were traveling from Portugal to Germany. I, mean, I was a transit passenger, and she, on the way back to India, and she was also going to India for a conference, neuroscientist, and she was from England, and she said, I was born and raised a Catholic, uh, uh, born and raised an Anglican, but not an, a non-believing one. So obviously I was wearing this dress, so she said, tell me about your beliefs. So I talked about Advaita Vedanta, you just, you have to, you don't have to ask me twice. <laughs> <laughs> 
So it was not a very long flight, one hour, one and a half, or something like that, to Munich. Um, and after landing, oh, and so after I finished, it was very sharp, very, very, very intelligent. And, and she had not heard this earlier. She became very intrigued, and she said, well, you have not convinced me, but I can't find a flaw in your arguments. <laughs> That's the interesting thing. Even the most hardcore, even if you're sharp enough to understand what is being said, people become intrigued. I was in the Shivananda Ashram, Bahamas, uh, just a, a couple of months, or last month, February, yeah. And uh, there was this mathematician from Oxford University, Marcus du Satoy. Uh, he's a very well-known scientist, a mathematician. In fact, he occupies the position which Richard Dawkins, selfish gene, there's a British government position for the popularization of science. So Richard Dawkins has just vacated that one and Marcus du Satoy has come in there. Very interesting. This mathematician, pure mathematics, I was talking about Aparokshanubhuti, and he would come and sit on each of those sessions. And then he was full, he had so many questions uh, in breakfast and, and in supper. And we would talk so intensely, and his wife was sitting next to him, and she said rather, there's a slight bit of annoyance, she said to me, you are his be new best friend now. <laughs> But scientists become intrigued by this, this, this approach. Um, this approach to consciousness, you know, modern interest in consciousness studies. For the first time, the right questions are being asked. Here, David Chalmers, what he calls the hard problem of consciousness, the right questions are being asked. What is consciousness? Um, Evan Thompson, in his uh, book, Waking, Dreaming, and Being, he writes that the science of consciousness is not modern. It's not that we just started asking this question now. It's more than 5,000 years old. It goes back to the texts called the Upanishads. He writes, and then he goes on to say, these Upanishads are so profound, so key to human civilization, that we should date our history not as AD and BC, but before Upanishad and after Upanishad. Evan Thompson says that. Swami Vivekananda says, what is the importance of Advaita Vedanta to modern civilization? Not that just it is acceptable to scientists. Notice one thing, as an aside again, the tremendous attacks on dualistic religion, the new atheists, Christopher Hitchens and uh, uh, Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris, if you look at the de debates there, between them and the whole range of uh, um, rabbis or pastors or theologians, and always you'll see those who are advocating the side of religion seem to come off worse. But I enjoy those debates greatly because not one thing that is said here impinges or has a, any problem for Advaita Vedanta or even say the core of Buddhism. Robert Wright recently, who lives in Princeton, he's written a book, Why Buddhism is True. And it's important because he's an atheist. He's a staunch Neo-Darwinian. So here is this person writing Why Buddhism is True. Now, what is, the, um, what is the implication of this? I also mentioned earlier how Sam Harris has written a book, Waking Up. He's no friend of religion, absolutely against religion. Just as Einstein said, they're all uh, superstitions. He also said they're all superstitions. But he says these two traditions I've investigated, Tibetan Buddhism 
and Advaita Vedanta. He says, I cannot deny that there is a core of truth. He is very careful with his word. There's a core of truth in both of them. Very valuable truth is there in both of them. So that much he says. So as Vivekananda more than a hundred years ago said, the only form of religion and spirituality acceptable to the modern scientific man, mind will be Advaita Vedanta. And this idea of an impersonal reality. What, we, what Einstein calls Spinoza's God. What is the relevance to civilization as a whole? This idea of being and manifestation. Swami Vivekananda says powerfully, this Advaita has saved India from materialism twice. He says, first, during the time of the Buddha. Imagine, what a remarkable claim. He's saying Buddha preached Advaita. Which is, uh, which is quite shocking to a lot of modern scholarship. I'll, dwell, I'll touch upon that a little later. But he says, twice it has saved India. One is during the time of the Buddha when there was a rampant um, uh, crude materialism. He means the Charvaka. He, he did not, he says, uh, very popular among the masses. The Sanskrit term is Lokayata. Lokayata philosophy is spread among the masses. Even now it's there. No more so than here in Manhattan. But <laughs> he says at that time the Buddha came. The philosophy of the Upanishads was there. But it was poetry and confined to a few, a few monks and scholars, monks in their forests and mountains and in the hands of a few Sanskrit scholars, not with the masses. The Buddha, this is Vivekananda's language, whenever he speaks about the Buddha, is glowing. So Buddha, which is infinite heart and mercy, he made true religion, the core of religion, spirituality, open to the masses. He made it practical, not hidden, not uh, you must be a Brahmin male in order to have access to this. No, no, no. Everybody, Brahmin and Chandala, the outcast, a man and woman, everybody across the world, it is, he says, I do not teach with hands, fists closed. What is here, the truth is before you. So Buddha, he says, revived this ancient spirituality of the Upanishads. And then once again, when Buddhism declined over, over a millennia, and again, materialism rose uh, again in India. He says the great Shankaracharya comes and takes the same philosophy of the Upanishads, which was poetic, but not rational and philosophical. He systematizes it into, he says, the most grandest uh, philosophy ever. Truly speaking, now I'm speaking of Advaita Vedanta of Shankaracharya. This is the grandest philosophy. People have, across the world, whoever has touched it and investigated in depth, you can't find anything for the rational rigor of it, the intellectual elegance of it, and the direct spiritual applicability of it. It talks to us straight away. If you approach the Upanishads directly, it seems to be an incomprehensible mass. If you approach it through Shankara, there's a light through that forest. So Shankara comes the second time and rescues uh, uh, spirituality. In fact, I remember listening to uh, a talk by a great Vishishtadvaita scholar, Dr. Lakshmi Tatacharya, who had studied Vishishtadvaita Vedanta, not Shankara's Vedanta, Vishishtadvaita Vedanta for 40 years. And he gives, gives this talk to our, in our monastery. Remember, Vishishtadvaita, no friend of Shankara, no friend of Advaita. And he says, we have great respect for Shankara. Why? Because he rescued this idea of the Atman, and based on this idea, then later on Ramanuja and others have built up the uh, structures. 
So, Buddhism, not in this lecture, but somewhere else, Swami Vivekananda returns to this theme that twice in the past, once by Buddha, the second time Shankara, and he says, this time, again, what Sri Ramakrishna and I have done, he says, actually says, the same spirituality now spread across the world. So he opened the doors to it. But remember, here he's not speaking exclusively about the Advaita Vedanta of the Hindus. He's talking about something which is, it has in common with Buddhism. It has in common with all the great spiritual traditions of the world. In Christianity, in Islam, in uh, the Jewish mysticism, the Kabbalah, you will find this core truth everywhere. And that is what he's rescuing and bringing forth to the center stage. So this is the one which can have sway over the minds of modern humanity. Before I go ahead, just because I brought up a big problematic thing, and Swami Vivekananda dwells on it just glancingly. How did you say that Buddhism and Advaita teach the same thing? Because apparently on paper they do not. Advaita seems to speak of, like Hindus, they speak of an immortal soul. Of God, Brahman, which is a permanent reality. And Buddhism seems to say just the opposite. There is no permanent reality. Literally, Advaita is Atma, Atmavada, Atma. Buddhism is Anatma. Advaita says, you discover the, your, your eternal, unchanging nature, existence, consciousness, bliss, your problems are solved. Buddhism says, realize that there is no eternal, or unchanging nature, there is no Atman, your problems are solved. How can you say they do the same thing? It seemed, and traditionally, for more than a thousand years, the Buddhists and the ancient Hindus, they carried on a fierce debate. Fierce debate. It was good in a way because it led to the flowering of philosophy. So many texts were written, philosophy, uh, lo logic and linguistics became sharpened. Wonderful development. But they don't seem to get along. They don't seem to agree at all. They seem to be mirror images. But often... What seem to be mirror images are images of the same thing. There's a saying, the opposite of a petty truth is falsehood. But the opposite of a great truth often is another great truth. Swami Vivekananda put it this way. Notice one thing, that the debates of the Buddhists were with the Hindu dualists. The actual debates, if you look at the texts, on one side are the Buddhist schools, Sautrantika, Vaibhashika, Vijnanavada, Shunyavada. On the other side are the Hindu schools, Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Sankhya, Mimamsa, Purva Mimamsa. But not non-dualism. Non-dualism, Advaita Vedanta of Shankara is what you might call a Johnny-come-lately. So, <laughs> much later development in this form. It was there in the Upanishads, but in this form, Shankaracharya's form, that comes much later. What Shankara is talking about is not what the Buddha denied or the Buddhists denied. It works like this. The Buddhists come and attack the Hindu dualists and say, here is the body, inside is the mind admitted. But other than this body and mind, where is this eternal Atman you are talking about? Where? Here is the world, it's a mass, a whirling mass of changes. Kshanikam, Kshanikam, Sarvam Kshanikam, momentary, momentary, all is momentary. Shunyam, Shunyam, Sarvam Shunyam, void, void, all is the void. Where is this eternal God you're talking about? Where? It's just something you believe, it's a superstition. The Buddhist attacks the dualist. And the dualist try to prove, 
So long debate. But what Advaita says is, not what Buddhism is denying, what Advaita says is this. The snake and the rope. We are not saying that there is a snake and underneath there is a rope. What you think is the snake is in reality the rope. So it's not that there is a world and there is a separate God. It's not that there is a body-mind and there is something else separate called the Atman or Brahman. What we regard as samsara, the um, Advaitins realize, if you realize the truth about it, it is Brahman. We are seeing it as a snake. If you would see truly, it is a rope. We are seeing it as samsara. If you would see truly, it is Brahman. And here you find, amazingly, the great Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna. He says, shocking to many Buddhists also, samsara and nirvana are exactly the same. What the ignorant call samsara, the enlightened ones call nirvana. How is it possible? Because the traditional Buddhist idea, this is samsara, you have to give it up and reach nirvana. Here itself, what in ignorance you are seeing as samsara, in enlightenment you will see as nirvana. What in ignorance we see as a multiplicity, in enlightenment you see the underlying oneness. What in ignorance we see as jada, object, in, in enlightenment we see as pure awareness. What in ignorance we see as suffering, de death, disease, decay and the suffering generated by that. In enlightenment we see it all as a play of ananda, of bliss. This one itself, not a separate thing. The reality of the pot is clay. See, the problem is when it's introduced, it's a pot. And the teacher comes and says, no, no, there is a reality called clay. If you stop at that point, then you have got in your idea, my, this idea, there is a pot and there is clay. There's a pot and there's clay. Two things. But actually, they are not two. Alan, uh, Alan Watts says, he calls it the crackpot theory. If you stop at this point, you have the problem of the dualistic religions. The problem of trying to prove that there is a God and a soul apart from this universe. Einstein says, why I believe in Spinoza's God? He says he was the first great philosopher who says this body-mind, he calls it body, is actually the soul itself is, is right here. He says this is the, the reality which is appearing as this universe. He says that. I don't think he was aware of Advaita Vedanta, or, and it requires a good teacher to make it clear. But if somebody, somebody is fond of Spinoza's God, it's just one step to the non-dualistic idea. So here is the reconciliation between Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta. You see, when Buddhism says, if you look closely, it will seem to say just the opposite of Vedanta. It says that, it says even the Atman is not, the con it's not consciousness also. Not the body, not the feelings, not the mind, no Vijnana, not consciousness also. So isn't it saying just the opposite? You just said pure consciousness is the, uh, our reality. But it's just a problem with words. What the Buddhist means by consciousness is what we call the reflected consciousness. The consciousness, the awareness which we have in these mind, in the mind right now. And that comes and goes. What Vedanta calls Chaitanya is not this, this, this is the Chidavasa, the reflection of Chaitanya. This is not the self. There Vedanta agrees also with, with Buddhism. This, this is not the Atman. Robert Wright in his book, Why Buddhism is True, when he says that Buddhism seems to deny the existence of consciousness also, 
But is there a greater consciousness beyond this consciousness which is denied? And he says, I dare not speculate. I will not go into that. But yes, if he had gone into that, next step is Advaita Vedanta. <laughs> it's there in this book. So anyway, we leave it at that. Swami Vivekananda says, this philosophy has saved India twice in the past. And then he says, Europe is, is in England, talking in England. How sad. Brexit. <laughs> he says, the, and it will save Europe from materialism. This philosophy of an impersonal spirituality is going to save Europe from materialism. By, by Europe, let's say today the entire world. The answer to, the spiritual answer to materialism lies in that, in, in Advaita Vedanta. Not in the dualistic religions, because those, very difficult to believe. I was reading a, a modern French philosopher, Luc Ferry, who says, the great uh, movements of Western thought, Greek thought, he says, four phases of Western thought, Greek thought, then Christianity, then modernism, and then postmodernism now. And then at the end, he asks, gets a personal reflection. If you ask me, which, which phrase do you identify with most? Which would you like most? He said, undoubtedly, I would want Christianity. Except I don't believe in it. <laughs> Advaita Vedanta makes it possible for us to believe in religion once again. This is the next thing that Swami Vivekananda brings up. Avirodha, non-destructiveness. He says Advaita Vedanta is not destructive. It's not that now we have Advaita Vedanta so we'll discard all religion. No. Advaita is not unfriendly to religion. Advaita provides the logical basis of religion. Enabling modern man for us to believe in religion again in the 21st century. With an Advaitic non-dualist foundation. I personally, I worship God. I, I can love and adore God in all forms because the basis is non-duality. I know there's an underlying reality which I can choose to uh, express worship and adore in particular forms. Whether it's Krishna or Christ, it's up to your culture and your personal preference. But Advaita Vedanta makes it possible. And I'm not alone in saying this. Um, I have mentioned earlier David Bentley Hart, a Christian theologian who has written a book, God as being consciousness bliss. And he says, the highest philosophy of all religions, he says, is this one. And there, in the names of the chapters, if you open the book, chapter, Sat, Chit, Ananda. <laughs> he says, most clearly expressed in the Vedanta of India, but it is there as the, the highest philosophy of all religions. This is what is uh, needed now. And this has no conflict with dualistic religions. Gaudapada, we have been studying Mandukya Karika. Gaudapada Acharya says, Swasiddhanta Vyavasthasu Dvaitino Nishchita Driraha Parasparam Virudhyante Tairayam Na Virudhyate. The dualistic religions are firmly set in their own belief systems and they fight with each other. So I'm Vivekananda says, I challenge you to show one dualistic religion which does not have more or less of this exclusiveness. The moment you have a dualistic religion, this is the book, this is the prophet or the teacher, this is the revelation, this is the way I will understand God. Immediately it is against everything else. Immediately. And then if you're unenlightened, um, old form was to fight against others, convert them, kill them, um, speak badly of them. If you are more modern and more enlightened person, good person, you will have, you'll worry about interfaith dialogue, how to have uh, peace with... 
recently I was at an interfaith dialogue in uh, Seton Hall just a couple of days ago. And I said, let me share something from within that I really do not, you might be shocked, but I really do not see the need for this. In India, we know that the truth is one. It says there, truth is one, sages call it variously. So there is one truth which is expressed in so many ways. What is really the need for you know, dialogues and, uh, and papers and resolutions? Because to begin with, we do not hate each other. So <laughs> Uh, Swami Vivekananda said, I do not believe in tolerance. I believe in acceptance because to inside tolerance is the seed of intolerance and violence and rejection. I know you are wrong. I'm just allowing you to live. That's tolerance. <laughs> I remember speaking with a, a very staunch evangelist minister on a plane. So we were on a plane for three hours and we uh, amicably quarreled for three hours. <laughs> At the end of it, he said something interesting. This shows the problem with dualism and the advantage of non-dualism. He got up and he said, um, Swami, I by that time taught him to say Swami. So he said, Swami, uh, if I did not know that I was right, I would say you are talking sense. <laughs> and I met once a French monk, Hindu, French, French, uh, Frenchman who's a uh, Hindu monk, who's from one of the Hindu uh, cults. You just have to replace Christ with Krishna. And we quarreled in Mumbai airport. We again quarreled amicably for three hours. <laughs> same thing, the dualistic approach. This is right and everything else is wrong. And at the same, after, at, when he left the time for his flight, he said, uh, it has been an education speaking with you. <laughs> so this is the power of the non-dualistic approach. Avirodha, there is no contradiction whatsoever. Swami Vivekananda ends his talk in a very grand way. The time has come for combining the heart of Buddha with the intellect of Shankara, with this all-embracing love, with this acceptance of everybody, the Buddha, and this magnificent, extremely rational, logical, rigorously rational philosophy of Shankaracharya. And if we can do that, he says, then we will have a universal religion, which will be for all times and all places, which will be, he says, science and religion will meet and shake hands as friends. Poetry and philosophy will become friends, he says, this is his, his language. This glorious um, consummation of the development of religion in human history, this is upon us now. Now is the time when masses of people are highly educated, uh, are intellectual, find it difficult to believe in the old forms. Richard Dawkins, he was once asked, you are an atheist, but only 1% of people in the world are atheists. 99% they believe in something. You are minority, uh, absolutely tiny. And his answer was very cutting and sarcastic, very British humor. He said, that's true. Less than 1% of the world's population is atheist. But if you look at the, um, the Nobel Prize winners, there was actually a survey, the living Nobel Prize winners today, do you believe in God? More than 90% of them said no. Richard Dawkins, I rest my case. <laughs> the smarter you are, the more sophisticated, the deeper you think, the less likely you are to believe in God. That's what he wanted to say. So what is, the, what is the scope for spirituality in today's world? It lies in this non-dualistic this non philosophy, which is 
beautifully expressed in the Advaita Vedanta, but also found in the heart of Buddhism and in Jainism and in, uh, uh, in Christianity and in Islam and in, Ju- in Judaism and Sikhism, in all the great religious traditions of the world, at the core, especially the mystics. Look at the mystics. But if you want a rational, clear framework, you find it in the Advaita Vedanta framework. I'll end with the prayer with which Vivekananda ended. Let us pray then to have that we, may, we might combine in our lives today that great heart, that tremendous moral sense of the Buddha with that clear thinking, that, that logical, rational approach to religion of Shankara and uh, fulfill our lives. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu